Ceramics are everywhere in today's world, but who are the scientists and engineers who work with such materials? Now is your chance to meet them here on Ceramic Tech Chat. I'm Eileen DeGeer, and this is Ceramic Tech Chat. Usually, when people think back to their high school yearbook, it's with a degree of embarrassment for the fashion that was considered cool at the time. But sometimes, those old yearbooks reveal the beginnings of careers and accomplishments that unfold as time passes. If you go back to my high school yearbook, you'll see a caption. Each of us had to write our, our aspiration. And in my high school yearbook, I declared that I wanted to be the CEO of a multinational corporation. So I can tell you it goes back to, uh, to those early days. That's Carol Jackson, chair and CEO of Harbison Walker International. Carol has worked at Harbison Walker since 2014, managing their commercial operations globally before becoming CEO in 2017. Yet, her journey to becoming a CEO stretches back further than that through her education and previous careers. So how does someone gain the skill set to become a CEO? And more specifically, what does it take to manage an international refractories company? Carol's quote in her yearbook was not just a wishful statement. She was already involved in running a business during those high school years. When I was in high school, I was part of the junior achievement program. And in those days, that's when we still had the nighttime program where you form a company, you sell stock in the company, elect officers and make products and sell products. And then you cash out at the end of the year get your dividends. So it really is a, you start a business, run a business, and then liquidate a business. And I just fell in love with it. It spoke to me. And so from those very early days in high school and going into college, I knew that I didn't know what business, I didn't know what product. <laughs> I just knew right. that I, I love this stuff. This is what I want to do. And I, I appreciate and respect people who are in, are in service businesses. There's obviously a place for those, but my but my thing is definitely stuff, manufacturing stuff. <laughs> I like that. So, how did you prepare for that? So, I, I as I said, I, I was in junior achievement, and when I graduated high school, I knew I wanted to go into business. But what that meant, I really didn't know. So, I. Uh, I made my way around the Pittsburgh schools. I, I did my undergrad at Duquesne, and that was, that was the early days of what has become a logistics curriculum, so supply chain logistics. And okay. so I was a business major, and it was there that I learned about a program at Carnegie Mellon. There's a joint degree program that gave you the, the more quantitative, technical MBA. Uh, it was an MSIA at the time and a, a joint law degree. So I kind of put it in the back of my mind as something I might want to consider at some point in my life. So I, in my early days of, of business, 
I kind of, I went from job to job, really. So I ran a chamber of commerce for a while. That was actually a great way to, at a very early age, get to know a number of businesses. And also when you're in a chamber of commerce, obviously you're interacting with a lot of business leaders. And so I'm, I met some people who really inspired me to think about getting my education because I, I, I concluded, I don't know enough. <laughs> I need to go back to school. And that's when I ultimately did go back to the joint degree program. And I had always kind of thought, wouldn't it be nice to be a lawyer? But I knew I never wanted to practice law. And so I did the joint degree program and pursued a specialization in business law. So mergers and acquisitions and employment law. And so I kind of found my niche and did the law thing and really enjoyed the business side of it and specifically mergers and acquisitions. And actually, when I started my career, my, my, my real career, joining PPD, I thought for sure that I was just going to go into the corporate development group and buy and sell companies and do transactions because I, th- I found that was pretty fascinating. But uh, early on in my tenure at PPG, I was given an opportunity to get some, some different experiences. And my, one of my earliest mentors said, you know, you, if you really want to get anywhere in this company or any big manufacturing company, you really need to go into sales. Go, go live with the customer for a while. And ah. so I did that and loved it and realized that I had a knack for it. And, and, and specifically, it's, again, the getting in with a customer, understanding their needs, developing a value proposition that resonates with them. It's all part of, part of business. And so went from a sales couple sales opportunities to business development, and then eventually got to run my own business in, within PPG. And it was like, some, it just clicked. This is so cool. <laughs> um, you have to make the decisions, right? Or eventually. But it was, I, finally, I had realized my, my dream of, of running a business and discovered that not only did I like it, but I had a knack for it. And so I was kind of in the middle of, of, of my career and establishing myself as, as somebody who could come in, get to understand a business, reshape a business in some cases. And it just so happened that I had the opportunity to consider a position with Harbison Walker. The, the position that I took when I first joined the company was a leadership role in the commercial organization. So uh, I joined the company not really knowing much about refractories, certainly knowing the downstream industries, but really very interested in the company. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a rare but really phenomenal thing when customers are your biggest advocates. And I couldn't find bad stuff about Harvest and Walker among the customers. You know, it, it, people just love our products. They love our people more than anything. And so to be able to join a company like that, when I joined the company, it had just emerged from a, a restructuring bankruptcy, not for financial reasons, but because of asbestos. You know, the, the refractory industry, <laughs> the history there is... Uh, we used asbestos in the manufacture of our products as did the rest of the industry. So 
over the course of time, we, what, the mid 80s, late 80s, no more asbestos in the products, but you've got to deal with that, that liability. So the company was taken through a structured bankruptcy, emerged in 2013, and I joined in 2014. Uh, and at the time, the company was named ANH, which was merely the first letter of each of the, the legacy company names. So AP Green, <laughs> North American Refractory, and Harbison Walker. And so one of, I, I got in on the ground floor, essentially. I came into the company at a time when, as I said, just emerged from bankruptcy. And so you had these three really amazing companies and groups of people who were under one umbrella, but not really one company. And so one of my early challenges was to completely rebrand, reshape the, the image of the company, establish a mission, vision, and values. And so I, I had the great honor of being part of that process. So in other interviews, you've talked a lot about culture and corporate culture and why it's so important. So can you talk to us a little bit about what the culture shifts were that you had to do as you integrated three distinct companies and got them all to think in terms of being one family and one company? Sure, sure. Well, the first and foremost, philosophically, I'm a, a firm believer um, of the old adage that, that culture eats strategy for lunch. You, know? <laughs> you can have the best strategy, the most elegant business approach, and it might look really pretty on a piece of paper and, uh, and, and it might sound good, but if your people don't buy into it, if your company culture doesn't support it, it'll fail. And so critical to, to ensuring our sustained success moving forward are our people. And so when it came to really looking at the culture, one of the, the things that we did was talk to our people, get the, the voice of our, our organization, a voice of our employees to understand who are we, what, what are we about? And despite the fact that there were three companies that came together to form what we know now to be Harbison Walker, the common characteristics were palpable and significant. And by that, I mean, whether somebody came from an AP Green line of business or a North American refractory line or Harbison Walker, our people said, look, we are and we want to be doers. We, we look at ourselves, think about rolling up your sleeves and getting into it with customers. Our people are the get it done kind of folks. And so that we already had the culture. It was a matter of reminding people, telling people, this is who we are. This is consistently who we want to be. And our customers love us for it. The market globally admires us for it. So it's really important that we pay off on, on that commitment to the industry. When Carol first joined Harbison Walker, she was intimately familiar with some of the downstream applications of refractory ceramics because of her previous work in the steel industry. 
However, refractories themselves were new to her, and only through her work at Harbison Walker did she come to truly appreciate how essential refractories are to all kinds of industries. And Carol is not alone. When the coronavirus pandemic hit, the lack of awareness in certain governmental groups about the importance of refractories became evident. Well, you know, when the the pandemic first hit and changed our lives, and, and if you think about it, I, I just recall, I can't remember the date, but I, I distinctly remember it was a Friday when, in our case, the Pennsylvania order came through mm-hmm. and companies were ordered to, to close, close the doors. The first order of business was to elevate our position that we were an essential business. Because you, you may recall when not only Pennsylvania, but other states were declaring that life-sustaining businesses were the ones to remain open and everyone else had to, to close the doors or go remote. In some states, in some countries, refractories were understood to be part of the critical value chain and, and essential or life-sustaining. But in our case, and specifically in Pennsylvania, we were not. We were we were not viewed as as a life sustaining business. <laughs> so our first challenge, and it, it wasn't just Harbison Walker; it was all refractory companies. We, we were quickly forced to do a lot of PR and a lot of phone calls to legislators, trying to influence the decisions that were being made about declaring certain businesses essential. And so that that was the first priority is to keep our plants running. Uh, right. Now, a, a lot of Harvison's plants are not in Pennsylvania. In fact, most of our, our plants are, are in Missouri and Ohio and Michigan. And fortunately, in most of those states, folks had the foresight to appreciate that that they needed to let that refractory plant keep running. <laughs> making right. product that was so critical to make steel and, right. and medical products, et cetera. But we, we had to fight in Pennsylvania to advance our cause. And then that cause, by the way, became an industry-wide initiative that the WRA took on and TRI, the Refractory Institute, took on. To WRA to re- being the World Refractory Association. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. To, to really advocate for the industry and educate folks on the need for refractory and why if you declare that a steel company or an aluminum company or a pulp and paper company are critical supplies to medical products, for example, well, in order to make that stuff, you need refractory. <laughs> Yes. Um, so that was really the first order of business. So let's see, you are also starting a two-year term as the chair of the World Refractories Association. From that vantage point, you get a view of the entire refractory, global refractories industry. So can you give us a feel for what you see as the biggest challenges and opportunities facing the refractories industry in, say, the next two, three years? Sure. Well, and, and I will tell you, when I first accepted the nomination to become the president of the WRA, I, of course, had no idea that, that this, <laughs> my first year <laughs> was going to be a COVID world, uh, in right. a COVID world. And so early on in my tenure, 
we were speaking of challenges confronted with this issue of of justifying our existence as an industry and so first and foremost that is still our challenge to continue to advocate as an industry association for for understanding and awareness not only i mean certainly be nice for the entire world to appreciate what refractories are but even folks in the industries that use our products like i mentioned early in my career i was in a steel company i didn't know what refractories were so that education and and promotion is is a is an ongoing challenge for refractories industry and and you'll you'll note that the wra we've our, our new website has a lot more infographics and informational videos on what are refractories and why are refractories so critical that that ongoing informational campaign so at, early on in my tenure one of the the newer committees that we actually just formed at the end of last year was a communications committee we already had a technology committee and a committee to focus on safety you know that's that's a lot of industry associations by virtue of having competitors working together you have to find rather benign common interests that <laughs> that right. uh, that are legal for you to talk about right. and those are the obvious ones safety and technology and such but we also and really it was the the vision of my predecessor Stefan Borges from RHI his idea was to form a a communications committee so when i came on board that's when we really got ramped up that that committee and thank goodness we did because that was the catalyst the mechanism by which we could focus on education and and developing awareness of the necessity of refractories globally so harbison walker is a corporate partner of the american ceramic society yeah. and how would you say how can the society benefit the refractories industry keep doing what you're doing one of the the greatest benefits i see of our partnership is providing opportunities for education and development of the next generation of folks it's no surprise shouldn't come as a surprise that our industry like most is in a war for talent and in my view when i think of who our potential future employees of Harbison Walker and and our future leaders of the uh, leaders of the company are uh, we're battling for the next generation of employee with not just refractory companies not just companies that might hire engineers but any company it, it, the the world is our competitor so given that war for talent the the more we can do to inspire and excite young folks to take an interest in engineering careers and specifically selfishly ceramics careers <laughs> the better off we're going to be so that to me is so critical and it's our obligation and it's our in our mutual interest to work together to inspire those hearts and minds of of the next generation of folks and a diverse group of folks at that i think all of us can do a better job at attracting a diverse set of entrants to these kinds of careers 
that to me is where we need to focus our efforts and where the greatest benefits have been and where the greatest opportunities lie for the future. In addition to polishing your business acumen and learning about your given industry, the most important part of being a CEO is connecting with the people in your company. And keeping and nurturing those connections during a global pandemic is a challenge that Carol thinks about every day. I distinctly remember that Friday as we were posting the notices on our office doors, indicating that we were by order of the governor closing our doors. And it felt like it felt like our team was being broken up. You know, we, we were all heading our own separate ways, certainly to our home offices, but some of our folks live in other other cities and such. And it was it was a it was a little emotional because it, it felt like we were we were ending something. And and I'm sure other folks felt that way as well. I don't think I'm, I'm not, I'm not the only one who <laughs> was particularly oh, absolutely. caught up in that. But uh, so we, no, we have two families, our work family and our home family. Exactly. Exactly. And it is, it, it, it's part of, it really is part of our culture. And, and so we, we kind of broke up the family a little bit there. And that's become a, a challenge is just keeping people, the energy level up and, and keeping folks engaged and, Early into the COVID crisis, I detected a palpable decline in energy level, and you kind of just feel it. Yep. And so we were really looking for ways to get people to kind of get back into it. So we have virtual happy hours where, you know, on a Friday afternoon, we, we were doing regular daily COVID task force calls. And so Friday call would be cocktail hour, uh-huh. <laughs> happy hour. Um, right. And, and sometimes we would even have themes like a luau or oh, nice. got to change it up and make it fun. But um, yeah. I, more than anything, that's, that's critically important is, yeah. Um, ensuring that that we're taking care of each other right as, as well because you know you can't separate your heart and mind from from the rest and so right you know well, keep people it's like you said it's it's people it's managing right. the people keeping them connected yeah even if we move to let's say a modified remote working environment where you have folks working in the office if they can and it, it makes sense to do so. But even as we look to uh, onboard new employees, which, which we've done, we have a program that we, we started. Actually, it's a, a second generation of a new recruit program that brings in folks from college programs, ceramics programs, engineering programs. Predominantly, those, are ten, those tend to be our targeted groups of people we, we look to recruit into the company, that's our field team, if you will, our, our farm team to, to feed ah. future roles. And yep. we, were, we were committed to that even this year with COVID. And despite cost reduction measures and other tough decisions that we had to make in, in, in terms of managing our, our cost structure in light of significant reductions in, in revenue because of, of downstream 
demand loss, we were committed to recruiting new employees and bringing in that next class of recruits, albeit smaller. And there's a challenge. How do you effectively onboard, engage, and as importantly, get that heart and mind of that new recruit to become part of the company? And so our remote working environment has presented challenges, but we've done, done it in a modified way where our new class of recruits they're actually working and their first rotational assignment is in our, our lab, our, our ATRC lab in West Mifflin, because at least we, we are operating that facility. Folks are responsibly socially distancing themselves and, and working in an environment, but at least we're able to onboard these folks in a way that they're engaging directly with, with Harbison people and learning about our products and our business uh, and then they'll go on to another rotation. Let's imagine a young person graduating, let's say from Alfred with a degree in ceramic engineering, looking at job opportunities in the refractories industry or maybe the additive manufacturing industry. Mm-hmm. Okay, one, pretty well established, kind of hard to explain at Thanksgiving. The other one, you know, up and rising, everybody's heard something about it. And it sounds really cool. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, what would you say to that young person that would be the reason to to compel them to uh, really look at the refractories industry as a career path? Yeah, sure. So, so often people are looking for why, why do I do what I do? Why should I feel passionate about what I do? How am I going to make a difference in the world? It's our people that are making a difference in the lives of our customers every day in the lives of our communities every day. Uh, what we're trying to create is a place where it's, it's not just about making products or providing services, but rather it's a place where somebody can come in, have a totally fulfilling career, and, and truly make it part of, of who they are. That's why we have those five generations of people who work for right. us. That's why we have, we have folks at our town hall I do the recognitions for work anniversaries and it is not uncommon for me to be recognizing people for 40 plus years with our company. Wow. You don't, you don't, and and families, generations of family members, you don't get that kind of loyalty and, and just a feeling of a, a, it's a family by, by being a company that doesn't treat its people right. When you, you know, when you join our company, it's, it's not only a place to work, it's a place to be and mm-hmm. a place to fulfill your dreams. And so that's, that's kind of what I remind our new recruits. The, the choice Great. they've chosen is a good one. <laughs> yeah. Though navigating a pandemic is far from easy, having strong relationships with your coworkers is an important part of maintaining a successful business. And that applies at every level of the organization, from entry-level workers all the way to the CEO. I'm Eileen DeGeer, and this is Ceramic Tech Chat. Visit our website at ceramics.org for this episode's show notes to learn more about Carol Jackson and Harbison Walker International. 
Ceramic Tech Chat is produced by Lisa McDonald and copyrighted by the American Ceramic Society. Until next time, I'm Ayanna here, and thank you for joining us.